the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Is going to church really necessary? And then, what would Steve and I tell our 21-year-old selves? You're listening to The Common Good. Happy Friday, friends. Welcome to The Common Good here on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Alongside Steve Koble. My name is Brian Fromm. Steve has sat in all week for Aubrey as Aubrey is off finishing up her book. Uh, Aubrey will be back. Uh, we'll be back again together on Monday. But Steve, happy Friday, man. How are you doing today? Man, happy Friday to you, too. I'm, do- I'm doing all right. It's a little gray outside, but uh, all things considered, I'm doing all right. You could put that on repeat till about April 1st or whatever. Right? It's a little gray outside. Uh, yeah, Friday is here. So we hope people are looking forward to a great weekend. Are you preaching this weekend or, or not up this week? I'm not up this week. Okay. Do you enjoy not being up? Like, obviously, you love to preach. I, I, I know you wouldn't enjoy never being up. But is do you enjoy weeks where you're not up? Or is it like, oh, I wish I was up there this week? It, 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 uh, ebbs and flows. Like I probably this week, I'd probably be like, yeah, I, I wish I was up this week. Uh, yeah. other weeks it's like, man, I don't have that, that on my plate to, to have to think about. So it feels good. Yeah. Yeah. I was off the last two Sundays and last Sunday I actually was in our church, but not preaching. It was really fun. It was good, but I wouldn't want to keep doing it. Like, I'm like, no, I want to talk. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's time for me to be up there. So, uh, hey, if we always say this. If you're not a part of a church, go find one this week. And if you're down in the city, uh, Steve is at Renewal Church of Chicago uh, down by the United Center, a stone's throw from the United Center. I'm at Four Corners Community Church kind of in Darien, kind of the down South Downers Grove area out here in the Southwest suburbs. And uh, we would love to have you come join us. And I want to start right there, Steve, talking about church. Uh, I found this over at Christianity Today. It was written back in the summertime, but it says this. I skipped church for three years, but my spiritual loneliness brought me back. So the story of this person, uh, it says faith in church have been tough for a lot of people coming out of the pandemic. I'm one of them. The last three years ushered my wife and me through two job changes, a cross-country move, and months spent hunkered inside trying to keep our young children healthy and ourselves sane. By the time the world began to reopen, so much felt different. And so then he goes on to say, until recently, I could count on one hand the number of times I'd physically attended a church service since March of 2020. I could give many reasons for my absence from a young toddler and a newborn disillusionment with the church, enjoying a second weekend morning exhaustion and more. But if he says, if I'm honest, one reason stands out. The further I get from church, the less Christian faith made sense to me. The physical drift begets an intellectual one. So I found that to be fascinating. But he eventually says, uh, I was spiritually lonely. I missed it. And I had to go back to being physically a part of a church. And he's going to talk about how being physically part of a church then reignited kind of his faith. 
like yeah. the disillusionment went away, this other stuff. You and I as pastors are clearly very um, pro being in church, being part of the physical church. But let's talk to the person out there who might be listening now. We're five years post, four years post pandemic or for, since the pandemic started. There's probably people out there who haven't gone back to church. They've gotten into this habit of not being church. Maybe they're disillusioned. Maybe they just enjoy sleeping in on Sunday. I want to start by giving you the opportunity to give your best sell, if you will, of why being a part of a church, physically being a part of a church is important. Yeah, I, I think that oftentimes it, there's an understandableness uh, to uh, thinking that, man, I can spiritually flourish apart from a church because mm-hmm. oftentimes we think that the way that we flourish spiritually is actually through uh, our intellect. So uh, we think that we can read a new book or um, we can listen to a sermon online or uh, we can get inspired by a master class or, you know, some type of thing that would um, help us intellectually and that's not the way that we're formed spiritually. Um, it's just one aspect of the formation process. And so what God has put in place are all these different things that help shape us more and more into the image of Jesus. And one of the uh, central parts of uh, that shaping comes through the local church. So I often say that there are 59 one another passages in the New Testament. Mm. And those one another passages, if you're reading the Bible, most of the New Testament was written to local churches. So you can't live out the one another's or interpret the New Testament rightly apart from being a part of a local community of faith. Hmm. Um, it'll just be information and not stuff that you actually have to live. Yeah. Um, yeah. And the fact that you, there's no practice to the, anybody can, anybody can say that if, if you, uh, my wife would say, I didn't get being a nurse. My wife is a nurse. I didn't get being a nurse um, when I was in the classroom until it wasn't until I was mm. there on the floor that the dots came together, that the, that I understood the, the whole of the, uh, the board, so to speak. And so that's, that's a part of what church is. The other thing that I think is, is vitally important is that, um, and I heard this from a counselor, a therapist that, the thing that happened over the course of the pandemic is the secondary relationships that we all had dissolved. So, mm. and what that does for your mental and emotional health, um, just the ability to say to a familiar face, Hey, how, how are you? How was your week is important to your mental and emotional health. That's right. Um, That's right. The, the getting a handshake from another person is important to your soul. Um, mm saying hello to someone is important to your soul. Um, And then gathering together to say that we believe this together is shapes your soul. Mm. Um, Singing with other people out loud to God. Like when is, when is there ever a time in uh, day-to-day life that you sing with other people? That's right. That's right. That's not, that's like not something that people do. uh, And yet that's something that you do at church. Um, and, and then, you know, when it comes to even giving back your own generosity, there's a part of us giving back in our generosity 
that says that, God, the things that I have don't have me. You are the priority of my life. And I'm say, as, as I give to my local community of faith or as I give uh, to a, a charity, I'm saying to myself, God is the priority of my life, hmm. not everything else. And hmm. so there's a lot of other things that happen through the local church that help shape and form us and uh, into the image of Jesus. And, and, and I'll say this, too. Um, that uh, the, all the spiritual gifts are present in a local community of faith. Mm-hmm. And so whether you, there's encouragement, whether there's teaching, and even your ability to practice your own gift is something that fans into flame your faith and stirs your affections for Jesus. And I'm a, I'm a charcoal griller, Brian. I like uh, <laughs> to grill uh, charcoal and using charcoal. And one of the things that you realize about grilling with charcoal is that the charcoal has to be together for uh, mm. for the charcoal to be hot. If there's one uh, coal that's outside of the grouping of the charcoal, even if it was hot at one point in time, very quickly it cools off. Yeah. Um, and I think that's the reality to our spiritual journey. In order for us to be hot um, and on fire for our faith and for God, we, we need to be a part of a community of faith. Yeah. Yeah. That, there's your first book, man. I, you, you gave that. That was good. That was good. I think for a lot of people out there uh, watching online and stuff, that's a great bonus for when you can't be there, but it's not a substitute. It mm. can't substitute. This article that I was referencing, uh, I want to read one passage from it. He says, the strength of togetherness is one of the things I've noticed most about being back at church. These days, my faith feels less like a running tally of facts and more like a light switch. Being back together has reminded me that the light switch wasn't always quite so heavy. I just love that imagery of this guy who said, listen, we were in a bad spot. We went away for three years and we did the work to get back. So the weekend's upon us. If you're not a part of a church, make this week the one. It's going to be messy. It's going to be awkward. You'll go to a church that frustrates you. All of this stuff. The old saying is if you find a perfect church, there's no perfect churches. And if you find one, you're going to ruin it. So uh, go on and get uh, get connected to a faith community for all the many reasons uh, that Steve said. Well, coming up next, I want to have another church discussion. The old 80-20 rule. Uh, pastors know about this rule. I want to explain the rule, but then ask, is it a problem? We're going to talk about that next year on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Steve Coble. My name is Brian Fromm. So glad to have you with us today on a Friday afternoon. If you've missed any of what we've done today, I'd encourage you to go get the podcast wherever it is you get your podcast. Just subscribe, rate, review. You can also find us online at 1160hope.com, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Common uh, Good Talk. All right, Steve, uh, we've talked a lot of church this week as you and I are both pastors. Um, I'm guessing you're aware of the 80-20 rule. If you are, uh, explain to people uh, what the 80-20 rule is. Yeah, I, I guess it's I really put you on the spot there because I didn't tell you before. Do you know what the 80-20 rule is? But I'm confident so. you so. do. Yeah, it's the idea that uh, 20% of the people uh, do the work in the right. church, right? So um, if if you've got 100% of the people that come to church, 20% of the people are serving. 
A hundred percent of the people who come to church, 20% of the people are giving a hundred percent of the people who come to church out of that hundred percent, 20% of the, of the people are fully committed in, in, um, in every area. Hmm. I didn't realize I'm reading from this article in Christian Century. The origins of the 80-20 rule are actually in 1895. An Italian economist recognized that 80% of the land was owned by 20% of the people. So this 80-20 rule is kind of all over the place, Mm. uh, but it has kind of really gotten embraced in the church. It's exactly what you said. 20% of the people do the work. 20% of the people carry the financial burden, 20% of the people. And so you can look at that strategically as a pastor and go, I got to go find those 20% and really spend time with those 20%. That's where I need to spend the most of my time. Uh, Or it's just good knowledge to have who are those 20%. Uh, This article that I'm reading from wants to say, yeah, it is what it is, but that's not the Acts 2 church. Like, that's not how the church should be. So should we as pastors be fighting the 80-20 rule? And if so, how do we fight it? Because this, like I said, this author is trying to say uh, the 80-20 rule, uh, he says, is is do, it's just part of the, the narrative. It is what it is. But Acts chapter 2 is kind of like, all in. Everybody's all in. Uh, so what should our pre- what should our uh, posture be towards the 80-20 rule? Well, I think that we're always calling people up, right? We're always calling people to uh, to to jump in, to to fully commit, to um, fully, um, you know, step into all of those different areas where you are serving. I think the only way to really do that is to be someone who knows the people you're pastoring, mm-hmm. um, like you actually are their pastor and saying and, and having some of those hard conversations that, Hey, I, I, we said that you would commit to, to this. And, and part of our membership process here at the church is like, if you want to become a member, then you're committing to serve mm. this X amount of times. And if you want to become a member, you're committing to give, um, if you if you're becoming a member, you're committing to these things and this is the commitment that we have to you. And so that then puts uh, puts us in a position where um, at least I can say, hey, this is what you committed to. Mm-hmm. Um, what can we can you make good on your commitment? Um, and so that's the kind of the expectation that we have of, of members. I think that's the, the way that I guess. um you know, giving expectations up front is, is helpful to people. Um, but then you still got to come back around. Eventually those things, uh, people fade and people, uh, kind of time out and certain things and they, they don't jump back in. Yeah. Yeah. And you, that's good to have the hard conversations. Um, what does a church look like maybe in your church or just let's pretend like the ideal church, we throw the X2 model around a lot, which I love, right? They were together all the time. They were the, you know, they were all of this stuff. They were daily joining for prayer. They also, most of them died. <laughs> like, so be careful what you wish for when you're like, we want to be the X2 church, right? They were, uh, they were in the midst of great persecution. Um, but back to the 80 20 rule, uh, what would a church do you think feel like and look like where maybe it was just flipped? Maybe it was 80% doing the work and 20% not. Cause 
to say 100% is a little bit crazy, but let's pretend the 80-20 rule was still in effect, but it was the opposite. Wow. Uh, what is that? Yeah, exactly, right? As a, You just gave a, whoa, that would be awesome. What would that place look like? What What would that feel like? How would it be different than a lot of our churches are today? I think the energy would just be crazy. Like right. it would just be like this, the levels of camaraderie and hospitality and uh, welcoming spirit. I think we would never be, um, you know, we would never be worried about the budget. Um, I, I think that, I mean, I think that's the reality is that if, if 80% of the people who went to a church um, gave to that church, the church would never have like a need that needed to really be met. Um I, I think generally speaking, that's true. Um, and, and so you wouldn't have to have a, a capital campaign. Um, you wouldn't have to figure out a building project. It, it just would, it just would happen. Um, and then I think that there would be a lot of outreach that would, would take place too, in terms of like caring for the needs of people outside um, of the community and, and probably a lot of evangelism. Yeah. Yeah. It it would be, I think it would be a breath of fresh air. Right. And part of the problems on us as pastors, we don't like you were talking about earlier, we don't call people to, um, I don't think everybody in the, in the 80% is rejecting serving or rejecting giving. They just haven't been asked. They haven't been, mm-hmm. some people have rejected it, but sometimes we just lean into the, I know my own life. It's like, I do kind of go back to the same people because I trust them and I know that they're yeah, going to do yeah. a good job and I know uh, that that they're in this with us. And so uh, part of this is on us as staff. Um, what? Let me end it this way. What would, as a pastor, help people understand if this has never happened, then pretend, but it, I'm guessing it's happened at some point. When somebody comes to you and says, I want to serve, help me figure out where, what does that do for your soul as a pastor? Yeah. I mean, it's definitely exciting. It's, it's, um, it's invigorating because, uh, it feels like there's people who are in it with you, yeah. um, that they want to use their gifts. They want to, um, they want to, um, they don't want to just be a consumer. They, they want to be someone who gives back. And so that just puts wind in the pastor's sails. Absolutely. Uh, this article that I saw over Christian Century was actually written by a minister in Chicago, University Church, Julian DeShazier. So uh, thankful for his words on the 80-20 rule, because it is as a pastor, you could just go, that's ah, just the way it is. We're just going to stay with it. Now, get off the sidelines, people, because we also believe as you serve, as you give, as you invest, that it's going to be for your own joy, too. Like you will find joy in that as well. So uh, good words there. All right. Coming up next. Steve, together, we're going to ask this question. What advice would we give to our 21-year-old selves? We're going to look back and go, if we could take a time machine back, what would we say to ourselves? Going to do that next year on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Alongside Steve Koble. my name is Brian Fromm. Happy Friday. Glad that you're joining us today. Uh, If you've missed any of our show, go check out the podcast, wherever it is you get your podcast, subscribe, rate, review. Uh, Steve, you said you're, what, 36 going on 37? I've got exactly 10 years on you. So I'm 46. We'll turn 47 this year. Um, 
So here's the question I want to ask. I want you to uh, mentally take a time machine back to when you were 21, uh, probably in college. You and I were probably doing very different things. When I was 21, uh, let's see, 21, I was dating almost about to get engaged. I got married at 22. Like I got married wow. real young. Yeah. You want to hear something crazy? I got married so young. My wife and I next month, this month, sorry, this month will be our 24 year wedding anniversary. Wow. Like that feels old, man. <laughs> that feels pretty old. Um, but here's what I want you to do. If you could go back in time and talk to 21 year old Steve Koble, uh, what would you tell him? What advice would you give? What cautions or encouragements? What would you tell 21 year old you? I think um, my, in my 20s, I spent so much time wanting to make all the perfect decisions, wanting to plan my future out perfectly. Um, so even when it came to um, my worries around my major for college, or um, I realized that at 30, most people don't end up in the major that they were, uh, they studied in college. Like that's, that's right. not their actual vocation. And I don't feel like a lot of people tell you that. Yep. Um, and so I was telling a 23 year old kid that, uh, today, uh, this, uh, recently that, um, is going to go be a school teacher at a charter school. And mm. it's like, actually you would have been, but he studied psychology in, in uh, undergrad. So, um, you know, and was struggling with like, man, I spent all that time on psychology. And it's like, yeah, I, I know, but most people don't land in the place that they, they study the, that specific thing. So you, you give yourself grace in that. Um, I think that I, I always wanted to plan for, you know, you had your plan together for what, when it comes to the, by the time I'm 30, I want to have this, this, and this done. Mm -hmm. And rarely, rarely did anything in my life happen in the way that I had planned it. You know, I, I became a teaching pastor at a church younger than I had planned. I um, never finished a doctoral degree that I wanted to complete by the time I was 30. Uh, I didn't get married until I was 32. Mm. Um, you know, all of those, all of those different things. And um, when I was 21, I probably didn't even want to leave Indianapolis. And I, mm. I'm so glad that I, that I did. So more like live life with a more open-handedness and not look at, you know, the 30 by 30 benchmark and by 40 benchmark, all that, all that stuff is just unhelpful. Yep. Yep. I think if I went back to my 21 year old self, um, I would try to impress upon me, Hey, don't ride the roller coaster. Like the highs are rarely as high as you think. And the lows are rarely as low. Mm. Uh, my early years of ministry, I just was up and down. One Sunday, I'm the greatest pastor ever. And then the next Sunday, it's like, why am I even doing this? <laughs> it's like this up and down. And in a part of that is also, uh, I would tell 21-year-old self me, quit caring so much what other people say. Yeah. Just stop caring so much because you're, it leads you to just try to please these people who are loud or who are opinionated or who are, uh, I do not have this as much in me anymore, but when I was in my twenties, man, I was a people pleaser, uh, to a painful degree. Um, 
And then you get older and you realize, listen, I've got my family. I've got people I know who are in my corner. Uh, lean into those relationships. Work hard at what you're doing and have some fun and just be okay. But yeah. I would tell myself, uh, get off that roller coaster. Uh, do what you know. Do what you're good at. Do what you're passionate about, and uh, go home and enjoy your family at the end of the day. And mm -hmm. then get up and do it again the next day, and do it again the next day. Uh, yeah, I think I would tell myself that. Uh, okay, let's go even further back. What would would your advice change to 15 year old Steve? See, then at that point, you thought you were going to the major leagues. Yeah, that's different. That's different. You, you thought you were going to the majors. <laughs> Fifteen year old Steve, I would say, uh, find your identity in something other than sports. Hmm. Um, Fifteen year old Steve, I would say, don't take uh, girls and relationships. <laughs> so seriously when you're in high school amen to that man uh 15 year old steve i'd probably say uh focus on on yourself more focus on like developing yourself more than on being cool mm. i spent a lot of time trying to be cool interesting and what result did that how did that result or what, what were the results of that mm. Yeah, I would I would say that like I just didn't I I was never able to figure out how I was able to uh, be a good student. If I was able to be a good student, I ne I never um I spent all my time focused on being cool. Yeah. And yeah. and um and so it was more like a social ex school was like a social experiment more than it was in education. Mm, um, and yeah. so in some ways I feel like that create that that's helped me as a pastor in that, like, like socially, like our jobs are, are with humans, uh, with people. And so that it's been, it was beneficial in that sense. Like, it's not like I was under a rock, but I was always around people. But, um, but I, I think to your point about wanting to please everybody else, it's like you're living for other people and not, um, just living. Yeah, I remember being when I was a youth pastor, uh, one of the most important things somebody helped me realize was maybe the biggest job you have when you've got when you're a youth pastor or you have high school students, you know, you have you have your parent of a high schooler or whatever is the the mind of a high schooler uh, thinks can't think beyond high school. Like that's why, honestly, not to be dark, that's why suicide rates are so much higher in high school because this boy broke up with me. This is the end of the world or I'm not cool. This is the end. If you can get high schoolers to on some level recognize that there's more to come, there's college, there's, you know, there's they got maybe 80 more years to go. Yeah, yeah. That's the most important thing. And that's what I would tell myself at 16, at 15 is like. Have fun. Enjoy high school. Don't yeah. take it. Don't don't yeah. take life too seriously right now and yeah, go. All right. right. Steve and I are going to do a fun top five list here. Top five, top five, top five, top five, top five things with Brian and Aubrey. Aubrey and I do these all the time every Friday, but Aubrey is not a sports person. 
And that's that's difficult for me, as you know, out there. Right. She she struggles that I'm not a movie person, like I'm not uh, all into all the movies she's into. So I've got Steve Koble here with me. He's a sports guy. So I'm like, we're doing a sports related top five list. Here's the question. And you could play along at home and do it for yourself. Top five favorite childhood athletes. When you were a child, Steve, who were your sports heroes? Who did you have the poster on the wall or the T-shirt? Or they were they were the ones you looked up to. Neither Steve nor I grew up in Chicago. Steve and I grew up outside New York. So mine's going to have a bit of a New York, New Jersey bent. Steve grew up in Indy. So I'm, in, I'm interested to know yeah. if his has an Indy bent uh, or if it's a, a more national. But uh, does this make sense? You ready to go? Yep, I'm ready to go. All right, I'm going to let you go first. We're going to go from five to one. Okay. Give me your number five. At number five, I was really into um, uh, the Little Penny and uh, Anthony Hardaway. So I had yes. a couple of the Penny Hardaway uh, shoes. And when he was big, uh, before he got hurt, he was like, oh, man, he's the next He's the next big thing. And so super into Penny Hardaway. Little Penny. Um, yeah. And then at number four. No, no, stop at oh, five. We'll go back and forth. Okay, okay. We'll go back and forth. So, no, Pen, Lil Penny commercials. Those were yeah. great. All right. Uh, number five for me, this is, you might not even remember this person. This is super New York, New Jersey centric. Uh, I was one of the only New Jersey Nets fans you'll ever meet because most people were Knicks fans. I was a New Jersey Nets fan. And in the early to mid, early 90s, they had a guy from Croatia named Drazen Petrovic. And I loved Draza Petrovic. This story turns really dark because Draza Petrovic, if you know the story, died in a car accident uh, when he was on the nets out when he was in Germany. Uh, but this guy was like, when it came to shooting, he was like Steph Curry before Steph Curry. Yeah. I loved Drazen Petrovic, number three for my New Jersey nets. He was like one of the first European stars, wasn't he? The first. Like he yeah, was yeah. he was like one of the only guys who had a good game against the Dream Team in 92. Like he was he was a man before his time. So I was a big Drazen Petrovic guy. All right, number 4. All right, number 4 for me is uh got to be uh Jim Harbaugh. Okay, I thought we might see him higher on your list. Go ahead, tell us why. So Jim Harbaugh was the quarterback for the Indianapolis Colts from like 1994 to 97. And they called him the comeback kid. And uh, if you remember kind of when the Dallas Cowboys were in their three-peat season in the AFC, the Steelers were the team that came out of the AFC uh, to face the Colts. So I remember um, this game that Jim Harbaugh had kind of come back on the Pittsburgh Steelers in the AFC Championship game. I remember it, yes. And basically, I think the idea, the the like, all right, we got to do this for uh, for replay being used to uh, see whether or not somebody actually caught something or dropped it or whether they had touched the line of scrimmage, et cetera. I think that was based on this game, this AFC Championship game with Jim Harbaugh and the Indianapolis Colts and the Pittsburgh Steelers. But my grandfather, yeah, yeah. My grandfather, um, he managed a store um, on the northwest side of of Indianapolis, and Jim Harbaugh would come in and rent rent movies back when movies were being rented, and he was my very first autograph. That's awesome. I, I love Jim Harbaugh. 
That's awesome. That's awesome. All right. Number four, this is my only New York, New Jersey non-guy. It's somebody from not there. I'm interested to see if he shows up in yours uh, because really he shows up in everybody's our age. I'm 10 years ahead of you, which might make a difference here. Uh, and that is Michael Jordan. I lived in New Jersey but I had Michael Jordan stuff on my walls. Everybody loved I watching the Bulls on NBC was appointment television. So even though I was from New Jersey, when the Chicago Bulls came to play the New Jersey Nets, we would get tickets. So I'm the generation of Michael Jordan as a 46 year old. And for that reason, he is on my list. Yeah, I'm going to go. Um, I'm going to go with Reggie Miller. And oh, uh, yes. And so, I mean, Reggie was just boom, baby. That I just grew up watching, uh, watching Reggie play, and and they always had a good team going into the you know, Eastern uh, Conference playoffs, and always got kind of shut down by Michael Jordan and in, in the Bulls. That's right. So, That's right. uh, but lots of big moments in my childhood uh, from Reggie. I Miller. remember where I was sitting in my living room. Uh, in New Jersey when Reggie Miller scored the eight points in like four seconds against the Knicks or 10 seconds or whatever. I remember where I was watching that game. (laughs) All right, Steve, for me, uh, the next three are going to define uh, what it was to be a New York sports fan in the 1980s and 90s because my top three, all of their careers were marked by drug addiction. (laughs) So... Uh, you will you will understand that when I see it, but these were legitimately my three favorite players, which should tell you something uh, about my about my teams growing up. The first one, I was an enormous and continue to be an enormous New York Mets fan, and the phenom pitcher was Dwight Doc Gooden. Mm. I loved Doc Gooden. I still love Doc Gooden to this day. Should have been a Hall of Famer if not for cocaine, uh, but. Uh, Maybe the greatest season ever, his 1985 Cy Young season, uh, was unbelievable. 24 and 4 with a one point whatever ERA when he was 19 or 20 years old is still one of the best ones. I love Dwight Gooden. Okay, so I'm going to go baseball as well, a little bit uh, past Dwight Gooden timeline, but King Griffey Jr. Nice. Uh, Huge, huge King Griffey Jr. fan. I didn't have like a specific um, team in terms of baseball, but I really, really loved King Griffey Jr. Loved uh, how he played defense. Uh, loved his swing. He's uh, the best. Yes. The kid, I think they called him or whatever. Yeah. Uh, okay. So we're up to number two for me. Uh, this is football. As anyone who listens to this show knows, I'm an enormous New York Giants fan. And in the mid-80s, there was what I would say is the greatest defensive player of all time, mm-hmm. Lawrence Taylor. LT, uh, he was so fun to watch, also had cocaine addiction issues. Should tell you much about New York City in the 80s and 90s. Uh, but I will go to bat against anyone who wants to argue who the greatest defensive player of all time is. I believe it's Lawrence Taylor, and I got to grow up watching him. So I number two for me is Lawrence Taylor. Okay, so I'm I'm anticipating a Daryl Strawberry number one. You you you, I, you might be on the right track. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, one of the last Christmas presents I got from my grandmother was uh, a framed poster of the Dream Team, and nice. so I you know I loved all those guys: David Robinson, Charles Barkley, 
um, you know, Magic Larry. But Michael Jordan has got to be my number one. I, I just can't get around it. Um, as much as I love to see the Pacers uh, play and do their thing and they ran up against the Bulls and it just was like Michael Jordan just wouldn't allow it. You know, right. he just willed it. And uh, so he's he's uh, he's the best, I think. I was interested to see if you went there as a Pacers fan because our generation – Everybody loved Michael Jordan, right? Mm -hmm. Everyone wanted to be like Mike. And uh, yeah, okay. Uh, I do like to throw in some honorable mentions from my Mets, Keith Hernandez and Gary Carter. They were wonderful. But the most random guy that I was I was a fan of, I had a poster on the wall. Uh, so this is honorable mention, was Kirby Puckett. I loved oh, yeah, Kirby yeah. Puckett. I think because I was short as a little kid and he was short and this and that. And uh, so big Kirby Puckett fan. But Steve is right. My number one had a poster on the wall, Daryl Strawberry. I loved Daryl Strawberry. I was so sad when he left the Mets. It was like the first time a free agent left. Um, but he was dynamic. He was fun. Uh, ironically, we hopefully will get him on the show someday because he's now a pastor and like an evangelist. Um, but back in the day, not a pastor and evangelist. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, but he played right field for the 80s, early 90s New York Mets, and I loved straw. So, all right, those are our top five favorite childhood athletes. I wonder who yours is. You can go weigh in at Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Common Good Talk. All right, man, it's the weekend. Hey, man, I, I want to say thanks. Thanks, friend, for taking this amount of time. You do great at this. You have a lot to share, a lot of wisdom. Uh, and it's just been fun hanging with you. So thanks for doing this this week. Hey, same here, Brian. I always have a good time hanging with you guys and love uh, love doing this show. I think it's a great well, show. Thanks, bud. I appreciate it. And we, you will be back next time Aubrey needs time off. You will be back. Again, we hope that you have a great weekend. And you join us again on Monday from 4 until 6 when Aubrey is back in her chair and will be back with us. But until then, we hope you have a great weekend. For Steve Koble, my name is Brian Fromm. You've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com. <laughs> 